The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in a series called All Things New, and so this morning we're going to be uh, sitting in two different passages uh, in the Bible, and I apologize. Uh, They're both long passages, so we're going to try to make sure that we uh, read through them accordingly and in a helpful way, but we're going to be in Psalm 107, um, which is in the middle of your Bible, a little to the right, um, and then Mark chapters 4 through 5. If you have a Bible, uh, you can choose. Um, it's choose your own adventure, which one you want to sit in. <laughs> um, I'm going to read the opening sections of Psalm 107, and then we will pray, and we will read through all of the, work through all of this together. Psalm 107, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them in a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies a longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And the psalm ends, when they, diminished and when they were diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But he raises up the needy out of affliction, and he makes their families like flocks. They rise and see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And let me read this section from the end of Mark 6. Now when they, were, when they saw them going and recognized them, this is about the disciples, and they ran before them on foot in all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore and saw a great crowd, they had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away and go into the surrounding country. Send them away uh, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they found five fish and five, and uh, they said they had five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit everybody down on the green grass, and they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he took up, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people. He divided the two fish from among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and fish. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these words about our Savior Jesus and his life among us to help us who are in need, I pray that we would see both in your word and feel among us your compassionate heart amongst our troubled lives. 
We ask that we would heal, feel your healing presence among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, what we're going to look at this morning um, is these two passages that we've just read selections from. Uh, my homework assignment for you is to go and read Psalm 107 on your own at some point, and then read Mark 4 through 6 uh, alongside that um, when you can. But uh, you're going to see as we work through this, this, these two passages side by side, um, what I experienced, I was in a lecture um, about 13 years ago in a seminary, and in an offhanded way, the, the guy who was teaching the class, he just said, oh, well, you know, um, it's just like how uh, Mark 4 through 6 is structured uh, according to Psalm 107. And I was like, skip the track, what? Psalm 107 shows these four vignettes, these four little scenes of people who are hungry, who are desperate, who are near the dead. Um, what's the fourth one in my mind? Uh, those who are hungry, desperate, um, and those who are under oppression. And then what do you find in, in Mark 4 through 6? You find Jesus feeding the hungry, meeting those who are oppressed by demons, meeting those who are near death, um, and calming the stormy seas. Both, sorry, that was the other fourth scene in Psalm 107. So you see these four things, and it's just like those moments where you kind of realize like these strange and simple facts that define the world around you. So I don't know if you've ever known this, but for example, like um, uh, bananas, if we were to have like a disease afflict bananas, all bananas in the world would be gone because they're all cloned from the same type of banana. Bananas don't have seeds, and you're like, oh my gosh, those lovely bananas. <laughs> Well, this is one of those things kind of like it's a paradigm of how you understand the world. It's a simple fact, and it's like, oh my gosh, that's the way the world functions. Similarly here, the Bible, strangely enough, I don't know if you're going to be surprised by this, the New Testament writers are trying to show how Jesus fills out the Old Testament. <laughs> and so they very intentionally, it's almost as though they were smart guys who knew what they were doing, and they took the structure of Psalm 107, and they filled it out in the in the pages of Mark 4 through 6, kind of like how you would have the foundation of a home with all the pillars and beams and structures, and then you come in and you put the, um, the sheetrock on over it. That's exactly what's happening here. Psalm 107 sets the foundations. Mark 4 through 6 fills it out. What we're going to see here is in Psalm 107, it's all about how the Lord meets people in their desperate, fragile condition, Right? Often, it seems like they're in this condition because of their own fault. <laughs> They've done something, their boneheads, whatever it is, and they are desperately fragile in life. And when we talk about being fragile, here's all I mean, right? Those sensitive areas where you might feel embarrassed, where you're just kind of like, this is never going to change. Those areas in life where they're delicate things to touch. Just those parts of your life where you're just kind of like, ugh. That's what's happening in Psalm 107. And at each kind of stage or vignette, God shows up and his healing presence redeems and renews his people. He's a safe God to be with. And so what we find in Mark 4 through 6 is Jesus filling out those areas, filling out what does it look like when the Lord actually does that? We see that in the life of Jesus. So what we're going to do, we're just going to jump right into the passage. We're not... We're just going to jump right in, you guys. Cool, if we read through some of this stuff and we start seeing how Jesus fills us out. So here's the main point for the sermon. In the fragile areas of life, look to Jesus' loving hands for help. By the way, the Q&A number, again, always comes to my phone. We do Q&A after the sermon. Um, I'd love to answer any questions you have. 
So what does that look like? In the fragile areas of our lives, look to Jesus' loving hands for help. So what's the first fragile area that we're going to look at? We're going to look at here uh, Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32, and we're going to see how he calms our distress. Distress would be like where you're just like, I almost entitled this like, or called this, he calms our freakouts. You could just, whatever it is, you're distressed, you're like, ah, what do I do? All right, so Psalm 107, let's read this. I've highlighted, just to try to like condense the amount of text that you guys see on the, on the screen, again, you can see the whole reference. I'm going to read the full section, and the, the pertinent sections are right up there. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business in the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. They, their courage, this is the sailors, melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then we're going to see over here in Mark chapter 4. On that day, when, they had, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filled. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Be still, peace. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the winds and sea obey him? I hope you're beginning to see here as we're working through this that Mark and his description of Jesus in the boat. We have this. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture of Rembrandt where he's like this very famous painting of Jesus in the boat and he's asleep and there's a huge storm going on. Um, But this is a famous picture, but Mark is describing this in line with, with Psalm 107 where they are in distress. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a boat where you're like suddenly like around waves like has anybody like been like in a storm with waves on a boat very disconcerting uh, not fun <laughs> uh, you, you, re- you realize very quickly oh um, this little tiny boat could easily flip and like that's technically I, I know that when you, if you've ever been in a situation you're like people will say well that's a five or ten foot wave and you're like that looks like a mountain you know like I don't know why you say it's a five foot wave but that that looks very big for five feet I know what five feet is that looks bigger than five feet so you can imagine being in a legitimate sea storm where you're like 30-foot waves, huge waves, everything going on, chaos ensuing, the boat is filling up. That's what's happening in Psalm 107. That's what's happening here in Mark. These disciples are faced with distress is the minor term you could use for it. They are freaking out. There's a lot of ways we could kind of, I could show you the, the word connections between these passages But what I want to drill in here is that they are freaking out over these understandable, overwhelming scenarios, right? You don't ever get the sense from this, both the psalm and Mark, that is kind of like, what do you mean, 30-foot waves is no big deal? 
there is a physiological response to like survival. I, I want to survive. I like living. I don't want to die. It's understandable for them to respond the way they do in a certain sense. But you'll notice here the key aspect of what's going on here. It's Mark four thirty-eight through 40. They're in the stern. There's Jesus asleep in the stern. And they yell out. That's why I say it like this. Teacher! You can imagine that this, the chaos, the storm, the rain, what the rain feels like on the floorboards of the boat. The overwhelming scenario. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Similar even in Psalm 107 where they said, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Jesus stands up. Peace be still, calms the waters, just like in Psalm 107. But you notice, what is it that Jesus, Jesus does here? Right? Jesus says in verse 40, or verse 38, uh, verse 40, sorry, I'm getting back. I'm going to, this is going to happen all the time here. Verse 40, why are you so afraid? You of, do you still have no faith? You see here, this is the only moment in all the scenes that we're going to see. Jesus rebukes them. But it's because in their freak out, they've done something that has gone beyond what God wants for us. You see, it's not a problem to respond to stressful situations with physiological and emotional distress. <gasps> That's okay. You I mean, if you get in a car wreck, um, you should be like, you know, hold the wheel, bag comes out. This is, this, this is disconcerting. It's, a lot, it's not fun, right? But what they do is they respond and simply say, teacher, do you not care? that we are perishing. You see, they take the distress, they take the freak out, they take that fragile moment of, am I going to survive this? And they assign motive to God. They say, God, I am about to die. This is not fun. I am under distress. This is very not fun. This is stressful. You obviously don't care about me. Do you not care that we are about to die? That is what I think Jesus is responding to in this situation. You see, when he comes into the distressing situations of our lives, whatever the distress is, right, whether it's work, family, uh, family that you're no longer married to, family that you can't get away from, if it is, uh, you know, the court system or it is just your own body and your own emotions, a car wreck, whatever it is, the distressing situations that we have in our lives, those are not necessarily the problem. They are the storm, so to speak. But when Jesus comes in, he was at, with them the entire time. He was at peace among them the entire time. And yet they take his quiet attitude towards their distress as, a, as implying, oh, you don't care. But see, Jesus can enter into our distress, our frustration, and he can be at peace and he doesn't have to be tossed to and, to and fro by the same distress that we are. He can experience it with us and yet not be defined by it. See, in the moments of chaos when we face it in, this, in our lives, the frustration and the distress that we experience, it is maybe just more simply faithful to say, Jesus, I need your help, even if the storm doesn't go away. 
Jesus, I need you. I need you to be in the boat with me. And that's enough. Even, even to the extent that the storm doesn't go away. Now, in the story, Jesus does calm the, the, calm the storm as, a, as an expression of his peace that he is with them. You guys tracking with me? See, they are, and when we experience distress, we are fragile because we are coming to this place of, will I survive or not? And Jesus is here with us in that distress, calming it by his simple presence. Let's move to the second vignette, or this second story that we see here. Psalm 107, uh, verses 10 to 16. I'll read all these for us, and then we will read selections out of Mark 5. But here we're going to see that he clears away our oppression. Psalm 107, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. I've underlined some of the words there just so you can kind of begin to see some of the the connection points between this and Mark 5. And they had, for they rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High, for he bowed their hearts down with labor and they fell down with none to help. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. And so here we find in Mark 5, this very famous story again. Then they came to the other side of the sea, the country of um, Gerasens, G-Town. I don't, know how, I, don't, I don't know how to pronounce the, the town off the top of my head, sorry. But this is right after they've just gotten through the storm. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, one of, um, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So that's a Bible phrase for saying that he was possessed. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him day and night among the tombs, and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell before him, and he crying out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjourn you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, this is Jesus, come out of him, the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? So his demon responds, we are legion, and they ask, send us into the pigs. And so Jesus sends them into the pigs, they run off the cliff, and then the herdsmen fled and told told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So they begged Jesus to get out of town. Jesus, would you please leave? And as Jesus was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him. He said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim to the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. I hope you're going to see the pattern here. Psalm 107 is very intentional in how it describes both what happened with these people who are living among the dead, and then Mark pulls all of these 
these words and phrases. So you know how it says the most high God saved him and the guy addresses Jesus as the son of the most high God. Obviously, there's a discussion about the shackles and the chains being broken and being put on. He is crying out. There is marveling at God's work and then there is the mercy of God's deliverance of this man. Psalm paints a picture of people getting punished, but that's not in Mark, and I'm not really sure that it matters so much because at the end of the day, God, Jesus, is responding to the the man's oppression. What do we mean by oppression? I I do believe in demonic oppression. Like, I think that's a real thing that we have experience and see. It's for real. Like, if you don't think the demonic world exists, and the global, if you were to ask all the cultures of the world, you would definitely be in the minority because uh, South American, East Asian, African cultures, all uh, Middle Eastern cultures, all affirm some type of demonic activity. It's generally just Western secular people that don't. What God is, what I think goes on in oppression, it is something along the lines of the suffocation of our humanity. We are intended to live and enjoy like God. We are intended to live in the world and enjoy the world as God intended us to enjoy. And oppression is in some ways stifling or suppressing or suffocating that reality in our lives. It can come in many forms. Certainly in this story, it comes from demonic. It can come from, you know, uh, family, spouse. It can come from work, religious context. It's all over the place in terms of what does oppression look like. This story just introduces us to the demonic reality to it. And what Jesus does is in his miracle of his word, he just says, you are freed from the demonic opposition. He casts the demons out. But oppression, in a certain sense, kind of like sin, is an antisocial reality. It's most effective when it isolates when it isolates us from other people. You'll notice how both in the story and in the psalm, the person who was being oppressed, they were isolated. You can imagine this guy's experience. Here he was. Mental illness, demonic opposition, whatever's going on. This guy had had a rough time of it. He had had it so bad that the only place that he could find to live was among the graveyard. I mean, I... I mean, it's similar today. Like, with, there's a, there's homeless population that lives in the the main the graveyard right here across the market basket here in Manchester. I don't know if you've ever done a walk through there, but you'll find little encampments and stuff like that there. It's kind of one of the last places of like unused public land, so to speak. He was so oppressed that that was the only place he could find to live. Nobody wanted him around, and even the people who had tried to help him, you can imagine the story behind the shackles. We can read that as kind of be like, oh, these people, they didn't like him, and so they put him in chains. And they're probably like, no, like we're just trying to prevent him from cutting himself and hurting himself. We really care about this guy. We're trying to help him, and even those helps from other people, he was destroying. So here he was, absolutely isolated and alone. And then what does Mark tell us? He rushes up to Jesus. And then how does Jesus interact with him? Do you notice this? Jesus asked him, what is your name? Here this man is under some intense oppression, intense isolation. His humanity is being stifled and suffocated in one way or the other. 
And Jesus' moments of healing in this man's life begin with reanimating his humanity. What is your name? You realize like how humanizing that is to be asked a baseline human question. Hey, what's your name? Or it's kind of like for us, like we say it kind of casually, hey, how are you doing? But how are you doing? It, re, it, it calls out from somebody, your humanity is real, it matters, and I care. Here is Jesus, before he casts out the demon, he is engaging this man's humanity and pulling out who he is out of the darkness. He clears away the oppression by pulling out this man's humanity and saying, you matter and you have value to me. Right? Jesus rehumanizes him before he casts out the demon. Certainly he can take care of the oppression. But as we're talking about this whole thing of being renewed in Jesus, it's important to see that he, some of the baseline ways in which Jesus brings renewal in our lives is he treats us as humans created in the image of God, desperately in need of redemption by his own hand. So a few thoughts on this before we move on. I do believe that demonic opposition is real. We're not going to really talk about that from this passage, but I think some things to take away from this passage, um, more common forms of oppression that people experience. One of the most common these days, and this may be something that registers with you, is there is a human, there is a huge plight of loneliness in our culture. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, a couple years ago, um, the UK established a minister for loneliness. Uh, it's so bad because loneliness was connected to so many mental health struggles it's so uh, isolation is in, men, some, in some medical studies. It's worse for you to be isolated from humanity, from human contact alone. Um, it's worse for you than 15 cigarettes a day. Like you can imagine, like if somebody's like plowing through 15 cigarettes a day, not good. This is human isolation is worse than that. Uh, the Massachusetts Task Force to End Loneliness and Build Communities started this uh, this last year, and some of their their numbers are. People who are isolated are 29% more likely to die of any cause, and isolated seniors are 50% more likely to develop dementia. Isolation is a huge issue. And I'm not saying you need to take this on as like your new cause. It is something to be aware of, and how do we participate in Jesus' renewal of all things? It might just simply be, in light of the pandemic, that we are still kind of eking our way out of, not out of yet, we are eking our way out of, imagine all the ways in which the pandemic has compounded the sense of loneliness that our neighbors and maybe even you feel, right? Maybe there is just a coworker, a friend or family member that you're just like, you know what? I haven't seen or heard from fill in the blank in a long time. What's going on? I mean, I'll tell you what, I as in my own experience, and then in other pastors I've talked to, the amount of, of both suicides and funerals that pastors are doing is incredible this summer. It's higher than average. What are the ways in which we can support and care for each other just by simply saying, joining Jesus in this whole, how do we help people come out of their oppression that they may be experiencing, whatever it is. I'm not impugning that everybody's experiencing demonic stuff. I'm just saying the category of oppression, we can join that by simply doing what Jesus did to this man here. Hey, how's it going? Who's that person? Who's somebody you can reach out to? 
I think that that would be a way that we can begin to kind of live out how Jesus reanimates that for us. And by the way, Jesus reanimates our humanity. By the way, if that's you and you are in this congregation or you're visiting or whatever and you feel like, I haven't talked to somebody in a meaningful engagement. I feel so isolated. I just want, I mean, you guys know that like medically speaking, like uh, like a 10 second hug does like radical things for your mental health on a daily basis. Like just like a, a basic thing of like a hug. Have you ever seen those guys giving out like free hugs? Like in parks, like, you know what I'm talking about? I see those, I'm, I see pictures of that and I'm like, bro, I want to meet one of those people and give them a big old hug. Like I just, I like hugs. But, you know, like socially distanced hugs, you know, whatever. Anyhow, if you're, if that is you and you're like, I'm isolated, would you please talk, for real, I, I'm like, for real, please talk to me after the sermon service. I'd love to help you get connected within our church. Another section that we see here, we're going to look at how he dispels our despair. So Psalm 107, again, we're going to kind of look at this next section in Psalm 107. We see some were fools for their own sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. They drew near to the gates of death. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their stress. He went out. He sent out his word and healed them. He delivered them from the destruction. And then over in Mark um, chapter 5, 21 through 43, I'm not going to read this whole section, but these two stories, if you've read through Mark before or the Gospels, you'll remember these stories. There's this woman with the bleeding condition, bleeding for, I don't know, two, two decades, comes up to Jesus, desperate in need of, of, of healing. She touches his garment, and he gets, she gets healed. And it's followed immediately by the story of Jairus' daughter who gets healed as well. So these are both stories where they were, in Psalm 107's language, near the gates of death. They were near the gates of death, desperate, right? The psalm talks about they no longer had any hunger for food as though the bare things that they could have used in life to help them were gone. They were desperate, right? This woman who's in desperate need of healing, it, the, the Bible talks about how she had seen all the doctors, done all the things. She'd been to the, everybody who could have possibly helped her. She'd been spent out of all of her money. This was her last-ditch effort, Right? And if you've ever had a child who goes to the ER or has any sort of medical help, you, I mean, immediately you're just kind of like, I can't, I don't know, I'm not a doctor to help my child who's so helpless. Here's Jairus, whose daughter is at the point of death. And he is desperate, eager for just Jesus. Would you just, just come and see her, Jesus? I, there's nothing else that I can do. I'm at the end of my ropes. He is absolutely beside himself. Both of these I'm categorizing as he dispels our despair. They're both this woman in need of healing and Jairus' daughter ultimately in need of resurrection. They are both people absolutely at the end of their ropes. Jared Tolkien in the Fellowship of the Ring has this one little line I like to describe what, does, what, it, what despair means. Despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. Despair is for people who have determined that this is the end. There's nothing else. Both this woman and Jairus, they come to these moments near the gates of death, and they are in despair. Jesus, this dusty guy off a boat who hangs out with guys who smell like fish, who's a carpenter, this guy who walks around giving life to others, 
maybe he's the last resort. What I want to focus on in here is in both of these scenarios, touch is involved. You notice here in this story about this woman who's healed, Mark 5, 27 through 29, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And then over in verse 41, Jesus in healing this little girl, she's this dead girl on the bed, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. You see, in the midst of these people's despair, before Jesus actually performs the miracle, there is a touch involved. And you're, you notice, again, just a baseline, basic human interaction of just basic touch. Right? We're, we see all of these miracles of how the Lord shows up and provides for our fragile lives. And it's amazing to me that in each one of these, Jesus, all he does is he's just like a, a, a human. <laughs> like there's nothing miraculous about it. He doesn't, you know, in most of the miracles about Jesus healing, like 99% of them, there's no kind of like, um, I'm going to perform a formula here. And, you know, he's not doing like Dr. Strange, you know, like bing, with his ring, you know, all that stuff. Uh, he's just like, you good? <laughs> hey, how are you doing? Like, he's just being a human in how he engages with people. And so here, I want to just focus in here on this moment with this little girl. You'll see here in Mark, where he comes up, right? So, and when he had entered the house with, of Jairus' house, he said to them, who, um, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they all laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with them. And he went into where the little girl was. And taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi. I realize that's Greek language there, but what is going on there is Talitha kumi, um, Talitha, some, actually, it's a, it's name, it's a, you, blah, blah, blah. we're good, Liam? We're good? It is a word that is used as a name for girls sometimes. So some women are named Talitha. Talitha means it's an affectionate term. Like it's translated like little girl, but it's more like saying something like, hey, honey. Like whatever your kind of like endearment names are for your family or children or whatever it is. Like, like for us, you know, it's like, hey, buddy, how you doing? Like I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't come up to Al and say, hey, buddy. Buddy, how's it? Like I just—I wouldn't address Al the same way I would address my sons. I, I like you, Al. You're a great guy. You can't. I can't. Okay. Maybe afterwards we'll just do a big hug session, right? For Jesus. Okay. But um, <laughs> he comes up to this little girl and says, "Honey, wake up." It's almost as though to Jesus, in the midst of this room filled with death, the definite definite article, the, the period at the end of all of life, that thing that we all fear, the thing that defines the fear of humanity, the thing that we all dread, that we all despair about. Jesus walks into this room filled to the brim with death, and to him, it's like waking up his daughter from a nap. Little girl, 
funny. It's time to get up. You see, in those things in our lives where we feel like we are at the end of ourselves, that we cannot understand how we go forward. All that we need is simply to recognize that Jesus is in the room with us. And to him, new life is just simply a part of who he is. He is what dispels our despair. He is what calms our fears. He is the one that will see us through to tomorrow. And you notice, I just want to pick up on this thing about touch and then we'll kind of move on. Jesus touches this little girl by the hand, helps her, wake. hey, it's time to wake up. This woman touches the fringes of Jesus' robes and she's immediately healed. One of the, the commands that's repeated over and over again in the Bible, especially in the, I'm sorry, in the epistles to the churches in the end of the Bible, uh, one of the commands that you may not kind of recognize is repeated five times. It's, a, it's repeated five times. It's kind of important. Is the command to, have a, to, to share the holy kiss among you. Right? And now I'm not going to say, everybody get up here after the service and we're just going to... Not, that's not the application. But you, you can almost pick up on from... <laughs> this passage that how do we experience renewal? How do we experience just baseline? What does it mean to be a human that's valued? What does it mean to be a community of people that care for each other? The Bible says it five times to share the holy kiss, which I know if you're from the South American culture, um, you're like, well, we, you know, we welcome each other with kisses all the time. And you're from New England. You're kind of like, we good fences make good neighbors see you over there. You know, there's got to be some middle ground on that. The idea being appropriate physical touch is a part of just simply helping us to experience the real truth that we are valued and loved, but we are not just like brain creatures that walk around with we're valued and loved. We are people that are made with bodies, and our bodies, when appropriately touched and affection shared, communicates that's true. We, we are valued and loved. I think we can join Jesus in helping even just the, to help each other through the despair of life by just simply saying, you know what, can I give you a hug? Can I hold your hand? Let's pray and ask for God to show up and to dispel the darkness of this despair. Right? Not just simply like, hey, text, I'll pray for you. Even if it's like, let me drive over and hold your hand and let's pray together. There's a, there's a critical part to this of how the, the healing of Jesus comes out and in speaking to uh, these fragile areas. We're going to look at the last one here. You guys cool? We're going to... We're, we're cool looking at this? All right, Psalm... He supplies our need. This is maybe what you might... Uh, we, we started out reading this section and maybe less surprising at this point. But Psalm 107 and Mark 33 through 44, we see how Jesus in the fragile areas of our lives supplies our need. Psalm 107... Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He led them in, the straight, in a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. Then let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And then over in Mark chapter 6, I'm going to read a few verses from this. Now, 
Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there, uh, there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And, he said, and they said to them, what shall, we go, um, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? And he said to them, Show me how many loaves you have. Go and see. When they found five loaves and two fish, he took the uh, five loaves and two fish uh, and looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people. And he divided the two fish among them. And they all ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of pieces of the fish, of pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves, the loaves were five thousand men. We see here again people who are in a desolate place. That's a part of the psalm, right? They were in a desolate place. They were hungry. They were wandering around. The Lord shows up and He provides a straight path for them. He's teaching them. He's showing them a way to follow him follow Jesus and then as kind of this physical t- this physical uh, parable this physical story of what he is spiritually doing for them in the midst of their need hey we need both life need and we need spiritual need and physical need um, Jesus is teaching them and he takes the bread and the fish and it's like the biggest you know this is like uh, uh, the biggest potluck ever like and there is so little work like Baptists read this and they're like, why can't we have this? Like, why can't we just have one pot roast and everybody eats from it? Everybody, sorry, it made sense to me. It made, was funny to me. It didn't make sense to everybody else. <laughs> but he was in the desert. He satisfies them. But he saw their internal state. These are people who are hungry and thirsty and they have need. Now, Jesus isn't a magic genie. He doesn't just show up and say, oh, you want a Mercedes Benz? Bing. There you go. But these are baseline needs, right? They're hungry, and they need pastoring in life. They need a shepherd. So Jesus sees them, and he doesn't just see them as people who are just making boneheaded decisions all the time. Why can't you get your act together? Okay, I guess I'll help you. He sees them with compassion. If you take a few moments, what for you are the areas where you're just like, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I, I have this need. Maybe it is. I, I need somebody to care about me. It doesn't need to be a spouse, a meaningful friendship. Jesus, I need a community of people who care about me. Maybe it's, Jesus, I need a better job. Or, Jesus, I need strength and help for whatever your stresses are today. Jesus isn't embarrassed by those struggles and needs, whatever the fragile things are in your life. Our needs can, be, can feel embarrassing sometimes. Like, I just want somebody to thank me. <laughs> I just want somebody to help me or just say, hey, how are you doing? Jesus sees those needs. And what if we just simply said, Jesus, I want you to know this is my need. Jesus, I, I want to bring my need to you. And what this passage tells us is that Jesus is not embarrassed 
by your need, and he sees your need with compassion. Now, how is he going to solve it? I'm not saying he's going to pull out two fish and bread and miraculously do it. But he does care and respond. He does care and see your need. He sees them with compassion, and he sees your need and says, I got you. Let's see what we can do. As we've been working through these fragile areas of life, we've been talking about distress, oppression, despair, and need. Each one of these, Jesus shows up in. And you notice that really the only correction that Jesus brings is, hey, don't, don't, don't assume my heart towards you. Right? You notice that in the storm? That was the only point in each of these stories where he's kind of like, uh-uh, time out. Let's just have a little come-to-Jesus conversation. Imagine having a come-to-Jesus conversation with Jesus. He just says, look, don't assign motive to me. I am full of love for you. That's the whole point of Psalm 107. Right? Psalm 107, over and over again, let them celebrate God's steadfast love. And Jesus is physically living that story out, that reality out for them in the midst of their need, in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their opposition, their oppression, in the midst of their distress. For you this week, as you face any of these fragile areas of your life where you feel like your humanity is being naked and exposed and you don't know what to do and, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with my life? God, ah, uh, Jesus' mighty hand his loving hand is there for you. And it may just simply be taking five seconds. Okay, Jesus, I don't know the answer. I know that you are with me. Help me. That may be all it means to grab onto his loving hands. But in the fragile areas of your life, look to Jesus' loving hands for help. Let's pray. Father, as we've talked through this passage and we've looked at how Jesus is your steadfast love for us, I pray that we would experience the goodness of knowing Jesus this week. That we would enjoy his loving presence with us. Would you help us to reach out for his hand? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me just look at my phone here and see if there's any questions before we move on. Okay, I got a few questions. You guys cool? All right. Do you have any practical strategies for how to keep one emotional, um, keep the emotional and visceral reactions of distress from overwhelming us to a place of desperation? Um... So, uh, and then and the second question, as a follow-up, is, there, is the presence of overwhelming emotional turmoil due to the presence of trials a sign of a lack of faith, or is that missing the point? I, so let me just say this. I, I think that distressing situations, like there is a physiological response to just being in a distressing situation, whatever that is, right? It could be simply like, for whatever reason, I'm not going to get into speculation about what it is. There's a physiological response and there's an understandable dynamic to it of like, you know, like so for example, like uh, a week and a half ago for the second time, our freezer was left open overnight and hundreds of dollars just gone. 
that's a distressing situation. It's understandable to be frustrated and angry, and I'm not going to assign anything to any, any family member at all, right? But that's understandable to respond to that and just be kind of like, oh, right? and that may be on, for you, the spectrum mild. The point of the passage is not to say, uh, is, is to say, we don't want to look at that and say, God, why did you do this to me? And say, okay, this is frustrating. This is a, a stressful situation. Understandably, for many physiological reasons, even especially as they are compounded over time, depending on what the distressing dynamic of your life is, there are medical reasons why you respond that way. I'm not going to get into those. I think that's where uh, counselors and um, therapists in that realm of uh, professional help is super helpful because it's understandable to have physiological responses to that. And I don't think it's a lack of faith to be frustrated by those situations. It is simply the passage saying, how do we just make sure that we don't assign, God, you're flicking me, or whatever it is. Like, we just want to make sure that we're saying, okay, God, this is how I am responding as a human. Um, I don't think I have great practical strategies because of how to respond to this, only because I am trying to learn practical strategies. Like, for example, like, this last week, I was suddenly aware of, like, somebody, through a conversation, like, I don't have helpful ways to relax. <laughs> like, even just simply, like, when you get home from work and you change clothes, I'm like, you know, to, like, put on, like, your relaxing clothes, I'm like, why would you do that? Like, I am put my clothes on, I just, then I just go to bed. Like, no, 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 like, you, you change, like, even, like, using, like, your five senses as a way of, like, calming yourself down sort of thing. Never heard that idea in my life. So I'm maybe not the best. I'm a little bit more high-strung than is helpful in this situation. Um, I, I've got a few more questions here. Um, so why does Jesus ask for the name of the Legion? Um, or I guess I should rephrase it a bit, that I thought the Legion was the name of the demons. What I'm saying in that, I, I, the, the Legion in that story does respond to Jesus. But I think that in engaging, I, and this is reading the story a little bit with some theological eyes, but engage in when Jesus asks, what is your name? I don't think the way we read that or we've been trained to read that is to be like, well, once Jesus knows the name of the demon, then he knows what to do. But I think that at more baseline level, Jesus is engaging the individual and the demons are the first to respond. I think that's kind of how I read it. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question. Um, but it is confusing exactly who is the intended audience. My assumption when I'm reading that and the direction that the healing goes is that Jesus is engaged and focused on the individual and the spiritual dynamics are easily solved for him. So, um, it seems that faith is essential to fight our op oppression, despair, and distress. Since we cannot manufacture faith, is there anything we can do if we lack faith for facing our oppression, despair, and distress? Or are we just to accept the faith that God sees fit to provide in our time of affliction? So I think um, the idea, I think, in the question here is, and it isn't because it's poorly framed, I'm just trying to pause for a moment to kind of helpfully respond. Um, in responding to all the things we just talked about in the sermon, it seems like in each one of those areas, 
having faith is essential. Like it's kind of assumed, like I kind of basically, through all of that, just basically assumed, hey, you know what? You're going to trust that Jesus is going to show up. And what if you're in your distress and your despair and you're kind of like, I don't know. Well, I think in the, in the stories, what we're seeing there is that it's not so much the measure of your faith that matters. It's the direction of your faith. So it's not, yes, Jesus is going to respond to my despair. It's going to be great. It's, I'm in despair, and the only person who's going to help me is that guy over there, Jesus. That, to me, seems like the posture of both the Psalms and the Bible, that it's the strength of Jesus, not the strength of your faith, that brings Jesus' presence to bear in the situation. It's not, so you catch that, it's not the strength of your faith that, sh- that opens the door for Jesus to show up. It's Jesus' strength and just simply saying, he's got it. It's the strength of Jesus, not the strength of your faith. Is that, hopefully that helps. If it doesn't, let me know. Last question. You guys tracking? Cool. All right. We're gonna, last question, and we'll move on. We see how Jesus solved those problems for those people, but how does he do it for us? What happens or what does it mean when he doesn't? So again, I, th- I think I'll, I'll answer that in the back. I don't have, and I don't think the Bible gives us a prescription or a menu option for all the ways in which Jesus will respond to our needs. It simply says through these stories, he does, in one way or the other. Um, it's not like, um, and I'm not trying to be trite with the question, I promise. It's just simply, I think, we don't know the reasons why Jesus does not answer things the way we want. And I'm not singing, you know, Garth Brooks, thank God for unanswered prayers. Sorry, is anybody else thinking that? Sorry, that was... <laughs> sorry. That, sorry, that's where my mind goes. When Jesus doesn't respond the way we hope, that, that is obviously very frustrating and difficult. I think what the Bible is trying to show us is that Jesus is with us, and that doesn't necessarily mean that everything that happens to you is then Jesus like pulling the strings because Jesus even being with us doesn't mean that we don't walk into a storm that he could have stopped. Jesus being with us is we know that God hasn't forgotten us. He values our human experience. He sees more about what it's like to go through this distressing situation than we expect, than we could even see, and he is with us. God willing things will be come out in a good way. Like we want to thank God when things go well. And there's loads of other areas in the Bible, for example, Job, when things don't go well and how we respond to that. Um, so I think it's less about, I'll, I'll say this, I'm sorry. The difficulty of doing this Q&A thing is that like, I'll say this and then in 10 minutes I'll be like, I should have said something better. And I think of something better. So, um, Jesus really is with us and cares about us, and that's the point of what these passages especially are teaching us. Not so much that we get to say, okay, Jesus, look, for Jairus' daughter, you raised her from the dead, but then, for example, we can look and say, like, what about this person that you didn't raise from the dead, or you didn't prevent this person from overdosing or dying? And it's like, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not that you get to then kind of say, well, Jesus, Jairus' daughter, you know, we can think of even members of our church who passed away, What's the deal? The point is, in the midst of those life, those fragile situations, Jesus is with us. Thank you 
for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.